As we come now before the very word of God, if you'd like to read with me, we'll be in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 28. I think the page number in your Bibles is printed there in your bulletin if you'd like to turn in the Pew Bible. This is Matthew in chapter 28. But before we read, would you please pray with me? Uh, Lord, you, you've told us in your word that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. So Lord, would you help us to, to see? Give us light in the gospel of the glory of Jesus. And not only that we would see, that we would wonder marvel at these things, that you would make the dead alive. Help us to see this display of your power and bring us to trust you. Guide us now by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Matthew's Gospel in chapter 28. I want to take up this morning uh, just these first 10 verses. So Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he's risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. This is the word of God. Now, this is Easter Sunday. I imagine you already knew that. Uh, it's not a big surprise. It probably then is also no big surprise that we are looking at this text in the Bible, particularly on the resurrection of Jesus. We know that Christians always live in light of the resurrection. But at the same time, it's good for us in the rhythms of our year to have set aside times or holidays, holy days, to focus on some of the most important parts of our faith. And the resurrection of Jesus is one of those most important parts. 
There's a lot that could be said about the resurrection, even just from this one text, if we had all day to unpack it. Today, I want us to zoom in, though, to look close, a good, long look at just one particular part of this scene, which is on the stone. I want us to look at this actual rock that was rolled over the tomb. Uh, Not because we're putting emphasis on the stone by itself. Of course, we don't worship a stone. We worship Jesus. Jesus, the one who's called the stone that the builders rejected, who's called the, the chief cornerstone. We know Christians build Everything, everything on the foundation of Jesus. He's, he's the source of our lives, our homes, our marriages, our, our kids, our jobs, retirement, money, leisure, possessions, everything. We build it all on the rock that is Jesus. He is everything to us. This Jesus, who, who's the one who was and is and is to come, he, he's also the great rider on the white horse who comes to judge the sin of the nations in righteousness. And he's also the sacrificial lamb that was slain, whose blood was poured out in payment of sin for all who believe. We worship Jesus. So as we focus today on the stone, it's not just because we're after some curious bits of trivia We don't do that here. This is not just a a fresh way to sort of liven up Easter, to try to come at it from a fresh angle, because we did something different last year. That's because today, this stone, I hope, is the window through which we will be able to see more of Jesus. We want it to stir us to worship Jesus more. That's our hope. So with that in mind, we want to see what we can about this stone. In the verses just before the text, we don't have time to read the whole narrative, so we've kind of passed by it. But if you look at the end of the last chapter, on Friday, that is the day before the Sabbath, before uh, Easter Sunday, Jesus at that point had been uh, crucified, dead, buried in a tomb, which is a a sort of carved cave uh, place. And we hear at the end of verse 60 that this guy named Joseph, who'd helped with the burial, rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. He rolled a great stone. So, what from that can we pull out? First of all, there's one one stone, a great stone. It was common in that day for tombs, these caves where they put dead bodies, uh, to have these carved you know, spaces with, with doorways that they would, they would cover with rocks after the dead were put in there. And that was not mainly to mark where the grave is. That's what we tend to do with tombstones today. It's to put the person's name on it, and we know where they are. The stones, in that case, is to be protective. We wanted to protect the dead from various things. One's grave robbers, which is not common, but could happen in that day. I don't know why you would want it, but it could happen. But mostly to keep out animals. 
We don't want animals getting into these tombs and, and desecrating bodies, or worse, dragging them out into the outside space. So they'd cover them over with stones. Sometimes they would cover these entrances with bunches of stones, biggest ones they could find, all sort of piled up one on top of another. There's an occasion of, of that listed in Joshua. These kings are, are killed in battle, and they, they bury them in, in these caves and put large stones, plural, over them. But it was preferable, and it was more secure to cover a cave tomb with one stone. And that's the case here with Jesus. We're also told that it's one great stone, is the wording that Matthew uses. It's a great stone, and of course that makes sense. If you've got one stone, it needs to cover the whole entrance and actually to, to, to do its job. So these tombs were not terribly large, typically, uh, but there, there had to be some sort of doorway to get, to get into them. They weren't full-size doorways. And that would be silly to carve out the whole thing. You'd typically have to, to duck your head to get down into them. But they had to be large enough to be able to carry the body in. This isn't a tidy little casket that's set on a rolling cart. They'd have to, to carry the body in. So in this doorway, this, a single stone to be large enough to cover the doorway of a tomb, according to archaeologists who study these sorts of things and can find old examples of this, the stone would be just shy of about five feet across and about a foot thick, which is roughly here the size of our piano, just if we had cut off the legs and tipped it upright. That's about the size of the, tomb, the tombstone. And if you've ever tried to move this piano, by the way, even with the feet on, it's heavy. And uh, imagine then something that size, but not empty inside with strings. It's just a solid slab of rock. And so this stone is a great stone, not only big in size, but weight. Some estimates are that it's you know one to two tons. Last bit about this. We're told that the stone was rolled. He rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb. Stones then, in, for these purposes, were not round like a globe. It's not a ball of rock. That would not be helpful for their purposes. It's meant to be a doorway. So they would carve them flat on each side so that they would look like this sort of huge tractor tire. And a tombstone that could roll like this was rare because they're expensive. <laughs> and Jesus was not a wealthy guy, uh, but this tomb wasn't his in the sense that it didn't belong to him. It belonged to the guy that sort of before our text, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a follower of Jesus. And Joseph had expected to use this tomb as his own tomb. You know, one day when I die, my tomb is ready. Sort of the way we would purchase a burial plot today. But then when Jesus is crucified, there's really no place to put his body. And so Joseph says, I've got a spot. He asked Pilate to grant him the body. And he lays Jesus in his own unused tomb. So on Friday evening, with the Sabbath day, this day of rest, fast coming on him, uh, Joseph quickly you know, does what he can to wrap the body of Jesus in linen, gets it all dressed, and he and this guy named Nicodemus carry the body of Jesus into the tomb. They duck into this 
tiny doorway past this huge stone that was propped open with a wedge, and they get Jesus all laid in there in the tomb. And the last thing Joseph would have done after he exited the tomb and finished burying the body is to, to kick out that wedge that would be holding up this giant stone. And the stone, which was sitting on an incline, would, would roll down this pre-cut groove. And drops into place as a door now to seal the tomb closed. A tombstone like this, especially one of these fancy ones, was specifically engineered to seal the tomb tight. So in the texts around this, where it talks about the chief priest setting a guard over the tomb, how they tried to prevent some sort of fraud or funny business with the body of Jesus, it says that they sealed the stone. That doesn't mean that they went around with glue trying to seal up the cracks and holes and other things. To seal the stone means they stretched a rope across it and they would press this clay into the end with a signet on it. So you could tell if the seal was broken, sort of like a tamper seal. You know how when you open a jar of pickles and it goes You can tell if it's been opened or not based on that. That's the seal that they put in. But the stone by itself, even without the guard, is virtually, not quite, but virtually airtight. This is not just to keep the body in and all that goes with that, the smell of death and such, but it's to keep everything else out. Now, here we are in our text, Sunday morning, Easter will one day call it, Sunday morning, the day after the Sabbath rest, and we've got some women who are now returning to the tomb to hopefully finish the burial process that had gotten rushed before. They need some spices and anointing oil. There's a whole big process that goes with that. And we don't know what their plan was for the stone. You know, the stone is designed to be a door, but that door is supposed to stay closed. You could open it, in theory, but these women, there's no way they're going to be able to do it by themselves. So I, I don't know what they have in mind. Maybe they're hoping to recruit a whole bunch of guys who are around there to try to push the stone back up its groove and, and prop it in there so they could get in. Or maybe they're just going to figure it out when they get there. We don't know. Whatever was their plan or lack of plan, it turns out when they arrive, the stone is... Well, not a problem. When they get there, we're told there's a great earthquake. And it's not the earthquake that moves the stone. You know, an earthquake might rattle a stone, but it's not going to roll it against gravity back up along its groove up the hill. This great earthquake is caused by a descending angel who's the one who comes and rolls back the stone and then sits on it. Rolls back the stone and sits on it. Well, that's a bizarre, curious little detail here that there's this angel who's sitting on this tombstone. Why? You know, I, don't, I don't think it's because he's tired. You know, it's a big old stone, but he's an angel after all. They've done far heavier lifting than this. Nor, nor does it seem to be the most comfortable spot to sit. I mean, rounded stones don't seem to be, you know, easy to sit on. 
We're not told why, but it at least suggests that the fact that the angel sits means that his work isn't done. The angel hasn't descended, rolled back the stone, and then zip right back up to heaven. He's now waiting, sitting on this stone for something else that's to happen after he rolls the stone away. And that something else, listen, the something he's waiting for is not to see Jesus come out of the tomb. It's not to see Jesus come out of the tomb. That's one thing we might expect to see, maybe want to see, want to see Jesus walk out of the tomb. I mean, that's the whole climax of the events, right? Jesus is alive. He's risen bodily from the dead, this big victor of sin and the devil who's put all enemies under his feet. You know, what a big dramatic exclamation point it would be to take Jesus, to, to watch Jesus take that first step past the stone and out of the tomb. But we don't see that. Matthew doesn't show us Jesus in the act of leaving the tomb. In fact, if we read the other three Gospels, Mark and Luke and John, they don't show the moment that Jesus exits the exits the tomb either. It's this very interesting big blank in the narrative sequence of events. So, so later writings seem to be unsatisfied by this blank, so they just try to go ahead and fill in the blank. Have you ever heard mention of, of what's sometimes called the lost gospels? Do you know what I'm talking about on this? You know, Discovery Channel or various places before they started running reality shows used to run a whole bunch of programs on these sorts of things around Easter. Uh, these, these lost gospels, as they're often called, were written centuries after the days of Jesus. They were never considered part of the Bible or considered real gospels, but these writings are presented by some people as things that have fallen out of the Bible, that got lost, or worse, were hidden somehow covered up. It's the real story tried to make secret. This, these lost gospels are typically brought up by skeptics who are trying to cast doubt upon the credibility of the Bible. But usually when I hear people talk about them, my first question is, have you ever read these? You know, these are real writings. Have you ever actually read them to see what's in them? And I know this is a sermon and this is not the Bible, but I think it would be helpful for us to hear a section of one of them. And this is part of what's called the Gospel of Peter, which was written a few centuries after the Apostle Peter died, so not written by him. And I'm reading this not because I think it's true or that it's scripture, it isn't, but I want us to know what these sorts of things say. This comes from the so-called Gospel of Peter. The stone, cast before the entrance, rolled away by itself and moved to one side, and the tomb was open, and both young men entered. When the soldiers saw these things, they woke up the centurion and the elders, for they were also there on guard. And as they were explaining what they'd seen, they saw three men emerge from the tomb, two of them supporting the other, with a cross following behind them. The heads of the two reached up to the sky, 
but the head of the one they were leading went up above the skies, and they heard a voice from the skies, have you preached to those who are asleep? And a reply came from the cross, yes. So that's the, the record from someone way later down the line, and trying to fill in the blank of what happened as Jesus actually exits the tomb. We get the, the stone that moves away on its own. Two guys come, go in, three come out. We assume, I suppose, one of those uh, three now is Jesus, and all three of them are giants with their heads up in the skies. One of them has a head up past the skies, and there's a cross that's falling. I don't know if it's dragging or floating or what, but there's a question from the skies, and then the cross itself speaks and answers, Yes. I don't know what tone of voice to put on the cross. Yes. Now, the main problem with this is not just that it says strange things. Okay? The Bible says a lot of strange things. I mean, we're talking about resurrection from the dead after all here. The main issue, then, is not that the reports here are strange. It's that these lost Gospels are out of sync with the eyewitness reports from people who lived in that day. So Peter, the actual Peter, the, you know, the real guy who this Gospel claims to be written on behalf of, says this in uh, one of his letters in 2 Peter, chapter 1, he says in verse 16, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. In other words, we're not just inventing mythology here, guys, with giants and talking crosses. We're going to tell you what we saw even if it sounds weird or too strange to be true, we were eyewitnesses of this, and this is what we looked at. If the gospel writers were, were free to make up what they wanted or were trying to mash what happened into some sort of propaganda, they could have easily written into their words the moment of the resurrection. They could have given us this big wow moment of Jesus coming out of the tomb and the big Jesus show, but they didn't do that. Instead, none of them report Jesus actually walking out of the tomb. And the likely reason for the gap in the narrative there is that no one actually saw that happen. No one saw Jesus walk out. Not the guards, not the women, not the disciples, no one. What we do see, and what they did report as eyewitnesses, is that the stone is rolled away, and now the tomb is empty. And by the time that the stone is rolled away, Jesus' body is no longer there. Jesus is alive. The Gospels are clear about that. We're not left guessing. Jesus is alive. He is risen bodily from the tomb. But he didn't walk out the front door when that door was opened. Isn't that odd? 
You know, how, how exactly then did Jesus leave the tomb? We don't know, to be honest. I mean, later there's an account in John where Jesus appears in the flesh to his disciples when they're in a locked room. He doesn't just teleport into there. This is not a beam me in, Scotty kind of moment. He somehow bodily comes through the wall, as bizarre as that sounds. Uh, but that seems to be the case, most likely, of the tomb as well, that he somehow has gone through the tomb and not through the door. At least we do know this. Jesus did not need the stone to roll away in order to leave the tomb. By the time the stone was rolled, he was already gone. The stone was rolled then not to let the risen Jesus leave. Why was it then rolled? It was to let the followers of Jesus come in. Not to let Jesus out, but to let other people in. That seems to be affirmed by the angel. Remember the angel, the guy who rolled the stone and then sat on it as if he has some work left to do with it? He doesn't do anything else in the scene except talk. He has a message. That's usually the work of the angels. They bring messages. And the message that the angel brings to the visitors who come to the tomb, in this case, the the women, he says, don't fear. Don't fear. Jesus isn't here. He's risen. And then he says in verse 6, look, he's not here. He's risen as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Come see. In other words, I know there used to be a big old barrier stone in the way here, but I moved it for you. I scooted it out of the way so that you could go in and look. The door's open for you to now to come in and see. This affects the way we might view this tombstone now. You know, when we think of the rolled stone, of course it reminds us of the resurrection of Jesus. That is good. We should have that. But it is more than that. The rolled stone also reminds us of the eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. The stone is itself is a sort of witness to these things. Now, what do we do with that? Real quick, three implications. I'm almost done. Three implications of this stone of witness. Okay? There is a need for multiple witnesses. There's a need for multiple witnesses. The stone doorway to this empty tomb is one good witness to the resurrection. It's good, but not enough. We need more. Later in Corinthians, we hear every charge should be established on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So if the stone were the only evidence of resurrection we uh, we had, some, some would claim, and maybe it's perhaps true then in that case, maybe Jesus' body was stolen. Maybe it was a fraud by the disciples to try to to push as evidence of their claim. Maybe the body was moved, relocated by the the tomb gardener. Maybe the, the, the women just made a big mistake and actually peeked in the wrong tomb by accident. And so, of course, Jesus isn't there. But the stone itself is not the only witness. Not only is there an angel here in this case, but many, many saw Jesus 
alive and well in different times and in different places after this. We even see just a glimpse of that, the beginnings of it here at the end of this scene, where the women see Jesus in the flesh, and he says, greetings. (laughs) I love that. Hi. What else do you say when you've just come out of the tomb? Hello. Uh, and, And he tells them, hey, I'll meet the disciples in Galilee in just a little bit. Let them know. They know then this is not just a hallucination or wishful thinking or hoping that this is true. They've just heard the supporting evidence of the empty tomb, and the stone is one now of many witnesses. So we need multiple witnesses. We also need to, we need an examination of witness. You know, a person who who will just believe anything they hear is foolish. And likewise, on the flip side, it's foolish to be skeptical of every single word we hear. We don't want to just become scoffers. That's not a good way to live. The book of Proverbs says the simple person believes everything, but he doesn't say be skeptical of everything. He says, but the prudent gives thought to his steps. It is wise to be thoughtful, to be a listener of the reports, to entertain them, to examine the witnesses with honesty and truth to listen to not just the words, the report, I suppose, of the stone, but set them alongside the other eyewitnesses, many of whom who died for their very witness. Our faith is not one of just blind faith that comes out of ignorance. Ours is an educated faith where we look and want to know what is true of Jesus, so we thoughtfully examine the witness of the stone. Third, finally, I'm almost done here. There is a need then to believe witnesses. There's a need to believe witnesses. Not always, of course. Be thoughtful. But if witnesses are many and examined to be trustworthy, then what they say is true that Jesus is alive and that he calls us then to believe and worship him. You know, some people would say, I'm not going to believe it unless I see proof with my own eyes. Those people do not see the danger that comes with such a short-sighted, narrow view. Not just in regard to faith, But in regard to everything, we must on some level learn to believe and trust reliable witnesses outside of ourselves. We have to do this all the time. We have to trust the word of our doctors on our health, the word of our mechanics on our cars, the word of our journalists on our news, the word of scientists on their studies, the word of pilots on their planes, and the word of stones on their own tombs. At the end of the day, it is not just the word of a stone and many witnesses that we believe. We believe Jesus. We believe the word of Jesus, that he is risen just as he said. 
And he is now life for all who would trust in him. Would you pray with me? Lord, would you make us a wise and diligent people and in the context of that wisdom to learn, to hope in you, to see what is true, that you are alive, you are the steadfast anchor of the soul. Help us to hear the echoes of this empty tomb and to come to believe you that you are the risen Lord. And we give you our worship as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.